we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Today, I get to be with an activist pediatrician to talk PBMs, politics, and porn. Some might say there's no difference. I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to this episode of America Out Loud Pulse. There's lots of pieces to the healthcare system pie. The insertion of third parties into the patient-physician relationship is at the core of many such problems. Corruption and fraud are the last things we need. So, in 1972, Congress passed a law that outlawed kickbacks for referrals for medical care and other contracts. This was to be sure that referrals of patients to other medical care professionals were in the best interests of the patients and not just a way to skim some money. So, sounds like a good idea. But then, 25 years ago, the government made exceptions to this anti-kickback law. It allowed some middlemen to do some fancy footwork when negotiating prices. In the world of prescription drugs, pharmacy benefits managers, they're called PBMs, are the middlemen. Their price negotiation was supposed to save patients money. Now the system of PBMs has morphed into a big money-making scheme and patients are left holding the bag. And in most cases, this means higher costs. Congress has been talking about doing something about this for several years now, but it just seems to be talk, talk, and more talk. There's a bipartisan bill that was introduced called the Pharmacy Benefit Manager Transparency Act of 2023. But guess what? The same thing was introduced in 2022. Where'd it go? Nowhere. It seems to me that dithering around with this PBM legislation is an example of politics that is making people look good, but not actually doing something for the constituents. But there's an even more important place where third parties inserting themselves into our lives are being spurred on by the government, sometimes by law, sometimes by public approval. I'm talking about drag queen shows and some of these books and school libraries for children, no parental notification for life-changing medical procedures, distorted history lessons, and teaching our children how different they are from one another rather than how much we are all alike and how much we have in common. Today, we're going to have a great conversation about all this with somebody who talks probably more than I do, Dr. Marion Mass, and she's the co-founder of the Nonpartisan Practicing Physicians of America. She graduated from Duke University Medical School and completed her residency at Northwestern's Robert Lurie Children's Hospital. She currently practices at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Mass has published numerous articles on healthcare costs and quality of healthcare 
in multiple outlets, Wall Street Journal, Philadelphia Inquirer, Washington Times, and more and more and more. She serves on the volunteer board of her county health improvement partnership and the county newspaper. Welcome to the show, Dr. Marion Mass. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Dr. Singleton. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm just going to start right off. First, I'll just ask you, what got you interested in becoming a doctor? Um, well, I actually used to um, gut, gut the game that my father would uh, hunt for. My father was a hunter, and uh, we ate what he killed. So um, we had organic free-range meat of all sorts, and um, I would help dissect and pull things apart in the garage. My mother was horrified, but <laughs> it's okay. It's all good. I, I think like an appreciation for the natural world and the way things worked is, is the way that I would put it. Well, that sounds pretty good to me. Well, the big question for this conversation is how did you get into activism? What made you want to start changing things in healthcare? I, I think it's timing. You know, I would use the word timing um, when our three children were born and the, the, we have three and the, there's four years between number one and number three. Um, I, I stayed home and I worked as a hospitalist. So I was doing pretty much uh, nocturnist work and I was exhausted, you know, <laughs> raising three kids and I was a volunteer in the school systems and doing all kinds of things during the day. And then when the youngest got to be about, you know, four or five when he could finally make his own sandwich and he was out of diapers, I sort of woke up and I, I'm looking around medicine. I'm thinking, what the heck happened? You know, like all of a sudden you, you look at the details, right? You know, when you're a busy young mom and professional, like you can't pay attention to details. And all of a sudden you see your healthcare costs are extraordinary and everyone else's are too. And then you notice that you're having a harder and harder time even navigating the system for yourself. And then you think to yourself, well, it must be terrible for your patients. So I, I guess, um, I don't know, I, I, I felt dumb about the system. I didn't know how it worked. So I started paying attention and I felt dumb for a long time. I'd say maybe a good year and a half because it, it's very convoluted. And I think it's that way on purpose. If they keep it complicated and they keep the costs hidden, then no one will figure it out and the people who are making the money um, will continue to make it and then they'll continue to be able to influence the policymakers and everything will be working out hunky-dory for those that are making all the money. So um, I, I then decided that uh, doing something at the grassroots and, and getting uh, patient advocacy organizations and physician advocacy organizations uh, moving in the same direction would be a good thing. So um, I helped start Practicing Physicians of America. It's a nonprofit and we make no money off of it, no one on the board. Uh, and then that organization merged with other patient and physician advocacy organizations to form the Free to Care organization, Free the Number Two and Care. And uh, we, what we tried to do is we tried to find things in healthcare that were, um, th that have led us to a very expensive system. Americans are all paying more, they're getting less, they're tired of it. And you can either influence the policymakers with a lot of money, which we don't have, or with a lot of voice, which, you know, we've, we've attempted to do. 
Well, good for you. And I wish more doctors could get involved. But like you pointed out, especially when you have kids to raise and a busy practice, it makes it really hard for doctors to actually jump in and get involved. But that's what we need. We'll find out further in our conversation. We need everybody to get involved at all levels, because that's the only way we're going to make our voices heard. I just want to talk about these PBMs for a moment, because I know that you're very active in that arena there's because there's so many pieces in this healthcare pie, but that's one that we've actually seen mentioned and uh, kind of people talking around the edges of in state legislatures and in the federal government to let people know what PBMs are and why people are even talking about them as a target for healthcare reform. Oh, yeah, that's a great topic, isn't it? So um, PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, they they tell everyone we're making drugs more affordable. Well, how's that working out for you, America? <laughs> it's not. They're more expensive than ever. Um, so at one point during this advocacy, as we were looking, why does everything cost more and why are we continually getting less? I, I settled upon the PBMs as a target for people to pay attention to because they seem like such low-hanging fruit. I mean, Americans all say how, oh my gosh, the insurance companies are so terrible. They're making so much money hand over fist and this and that. But most Americans don't realize, or maybe they do now, that the PBMs have merged with the insurance companies. And when that happened, the PBMs became the revenue drivers. So for instance, Cigna, you know, the big insurance company, Cigna, they purchased a S- Express Scripts, a PBM, and their revenues tripled, tripled. Everyone thinks the insurance companies make the money. But if you buy the PBM and your revenues triple, who's really making the money? CVS, you know, CVS bought Aetna for $61 billion a couple years ago. Um, CVS also owns its own PBM, CVS Caremark. It's one of the big three. And at one point, it was listed that, I, I, I think it was 2021 maybe, 60% of CVS's revenue comes from its PBM arm. 60%. Well, so I can blame- certainly, I'm going to just interrupt no, for a second do. and just say, I'm talking my personal experience. I have Part D Medicare which is the drug component. And so I got Aetna. It was a low price. I don't take any drugs, so I didn't want to pay for tier four, which is very expensive. And that's for people who take very expensive drugs, but you have to have something because of course the government penalizes you if you don't buy the insurance. So I got one very cheap. Who had the cheap one? Aetna. Well, if you buy a drug, I had to get one one time prescription. And so you look on the list, you go on the website, look on the list, where can you get it? Guess what? CVS. So you've paid your insurance premium to Aetna. They direct you to CVS or else you have to pay like triple for the same prescription unless you buy it at CVS. So They've got you coming and going, and they make it so you can't support your local pharmacy. 
Oh, a hundred percent. And, you know, if you're a small business owner, you know, you'll get this, but even if you're not a small business owner, you should want money to stay in your own community because the money that stays in your community fosters your community. But PBMs, you know, you, you pointed out, right. CVS, they own all the pharmacies. Walgreens has their own PBM, Walgreens Boots Alliance, you know, so some of the biggest pharmacy chains in our nation own the PBMs and then they're able to use their monetary power and drive smaller independent pharmacies out of business. And then money is leaving your community. Everyone should care about that. I mean, they're, they're able to hide the amount of money they pay pharmacies. So they end up paying less to small independent pharmacies, paying more to their own chain pharmacies, and it puts the independents at a, at a disadvantage. And at some point, they may just give up, fold up their business and sell out to a CVS. And, you know, who could blame them if they're getting undercut by the big guy? So it's a, it's a sad state of affairs for sure. Well, it totally is. And we've certainly seen that with hardware stores and and other businesses. But the last thing you want is to not have any choice in going to a drugstore. And people tend to forget, not everybody lives in a major urban area in the United States. There's a lot of people out in the country. And guess what? There's no CVS there. They have a local pharmacy, if that. And... uh so you're going to make somebody drive to CVS and the CVS says, oh, no, you can get in the mail order program. And so then you get kind of tied in even more. And I, I feel like they just lasso you in and you're stuck and you can't support your local pharmacist. Well, sure. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, you you got your uh, pharmacy coverage through Medicare Part D, I mean, the Medicaid program, most states contract with one of the big PBMs. And at the state level, what people have found out over the last couple of years, and it it really seemed to stem from Ohio, their attorney general, Dave Yost, has been after the PBMs like nobody's business for a couple of years now. But in Ohio, what they found was that the PBMs were using a tactic they call spread pricing. They have all these cute little names for what amounts to robbery in other <laughs> sectors of <laughs> our economy. But spread pricing means that the PBMs got the money to pay the pharmacies for certain prescriptions. They got the money from uh, Medicaid and they essentially kept what they wanted to and then paid the pharmacies less than they really should have. And that was called spread pricing. So, uh, you know, to give a relative example, in Ohio alone, one state, one state, just Medicaid, $240 million per year in spread pricing. I mean, if you're getting money from Medicaid that you're supposed to pay on behalf of truly needy patients to pharmacies, and you're pocketing $240 million in a year for yourself, I personally call that thievery. But you know, they call it spread pricing. So, you know, certainly people have been paying attention in other states, in Arkansas, in um, in Florida, in other places. I, I saw one case in Ohio. It, it, it's not just with Medicaid. They play the spread pricing game with large employers, even like county employers. So uh, I believe the Ohio 
there was, I think, some county in Ohio where I think the jail system was contracting with one of the big PBMs and they were tripling the cost of of what the um, the product, what, what the drug was supposed to be costing and keeping it to themselves and then not paying the pharmacies. I mean, it's astounding. I mean, they're hurting counties. They're hurting whole states. They're hurting... They're, they're robbing from the poor and giving to themselves and they're quite rich. It's like a Robin Hood scheme there in that Medicaid with the spread pricing. And then you ask yourself, because healthcare is like one of those scenarios where you're so vulnerable when you're sick, you know, you need a medication or, you know, you, you need uh, a surgery or whatever it is that you need. You need to be able to trust that the people that are taking care of you are truly watching out for you. And, now we see these PBMs unmasked as these big drivers of cost in healthcare. How can we be trusting these big companies, these large behemoth PBMs? And, you know, I, I do want to qualify. There are transparent PBMs that do the job that the pharmacy benefit manager role was originally envisioned uh, to be, where they're helping to make sure that the money goes into the right places. But some of these big PBMs, I don't understand why all Americans don't just stand up and say, no, we can't support this anymore. You know, this, this needs to go out, you know, but I guess I do understand why, because if you all have Aetna insurance, it's 22 million customers just can't come in and say, get rid of CVS because (laughs) unwinding that deal is, is uh, I'm sure that's going to be fraught with peril, but, at the very least, people should start finding out who these players are and demanding accountability and transparency and demanding that for companies that have special rules just for them, you know, you mentioned the kickback at the anti-kickback statute. These very same companies have the right to receive kickbacks. Why would companies that go around robbing Medicaid, why would we want to give them the right to be able to collect kickbacks? It's obscene. You're right. I do talk a lot. Sorry about that. <laughs> But that's the best part. See, I just get to sit back and listen and learn. And I always learn so much listening to you talk. The, it's funny you mentioned the um, Ohio Attorney General, Mr. Yost. Uh, how did he call it? He called the PBMs gangsters. And I just thought that was so appropriate because the idea that legally they can do what they're doing. And like you say, it's not all because... There's, and I think one of the reasons this can happen is you have a benefits manager because there's benefits managers in HR and regular uh, offices and regular businesses, and they help kind of coordinate things and help the uh, employees out when they have various issues or whatever. And so you've put it in someone else's hands and you assume that they're working for you. And as you described, they're not working for you, they're working for themselves. And now you've seeded the, all the management tools and everything to them. And for the employee or the patient, they don't know what's going on. And it's interesting, you mentioned transparency. And I, after the break, I want to tell you a few things that the PBMs say is wrong with transparency. And I want to see what you have to say about that. 
So first, I am going to talk about my old friend, Cofix RX. Now we know COVID is fortunately seems to be waning and it's coming down to just being milder variants. And some people are still getting sick from COVID and we're hoping for the day COVID is just becomes another variant of the common cold. But until then, we still have to look out for ourselves and one thing we can do is use Cofix RX. It's very simple. It's a nasal spray. And we know, um, I'm sure, up to 95% of these viruses and bacteria we get and respiratory problems, they come through our nose. So the idea behind Cofix RX, you nip it in the bud, you catch it when it's in your nose before the viruses have those two to five days to sit there and replicate. Uh My guest is a pediatrician, so I'm sure she gets sick all the time from all these little kitties. So we've got to look out for ourselves. One of the great things I like about Cofix is it was invented by doctors in the USA, and it's made in the USA. Simple ingredients, xylitol, iodine, nothing nothing that's going to hurt you. So give it a try. There's a button on our page for Cofix RX. You can pop the button on, read more about it. You can get it from the website or get it in almost any drugstore. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix Rex nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD at cofixrx.com. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. So, back to these PBMs. When oh, before, before you do yeah. that, I have to mm-hmm. interrupt you and tell you, mm-hmm. I'm annoyingly almost never sick. It's, it's astounding. <laughs> I haven't had an antibiotic. I had INH because I was exposed to tuberculosis in medical school, and I graduated medical school in 94. I haven't had an antibiotic since 94. Isn't that astounding? <laughs> Carry <It> on. Yes. <laughs> well, maybe you got so much immunity from being around all the little snotty noses. So <laughs> good for you. <laughs> But so Congress came up with this Pharmacy Benefit Manager Transparency Act last year, this year. And so one of the things it said that the Government Accounting Office was supposed to give Congress a report that had company data on the amount of rebates that the 
patients got, because supposedly the patients are supposed to benefit, um, how much of the rebate was kept by the PBMs. And so what did the PBM say? Well, we don't like this transparency because in order to have a good negotiation, nobody else can know your prices. They have to be confidential. And so they say that to follow all these rules would mean they'd have to hire a new compliance officer, and then they'd have to pass that cost on to the patient. What do you say to that? <laughs> well, they have to hire someone new to follow the rules. The poor dears, you know, <laughs> they need to spend a little time in independent medical practices and see what doctors go through. But, you know, I, I find it interesting. I remember when... Um, the uh, rebate rule came out under the previous presidential administration that wanted to make sure that the kickbacks were flowing to the patient, you know, what what they refer to as rebates, you know, that uh, realize, you know, for your audience, what I want to explain is this, that these PBMs, they're the ones who set the formularies. And these are not physicians. These are what I call suits. They're not scrubs. They're not people that trained medically necessarily. The formularies are the lists of medications that are contro- that are covered by your insurance company. And as we mentioned in the previous segment, the insurance companies and the PBMs now own each other because everyone in the healthcare sector is up in everyone else's business. But the PBMs making the formularies, they can choose the medications that are put on the formulary and they're allowed to receive kickbacks. Think about what that means. That means that the pharmaceutical companies themselves, the wealthy ones, can choose to pay the kickback and they're paying it to the people who choose what drugs go on the formulary. See how this works? Mm-hmm. I mean, how can we assume anything other than you can buy your way onto the formulary so that your drug is the drug that's covered, which means that your drug is the drug that people have to take, which means that your pharmaceutical company is going to be the one that makes the money. You're your kingmakers. In any case, during the previous administration, um, the rebates were supposed to be passed on to uh, the Medicaid, Medicare patients at the point of sale. And the PBMs immediately put up a, a big, fat fight saying they couldn't, possibly, they couldn't possibly do that. And then they played a little game of chicken whereby they said, well, if you make us pass on the rebates, we're going to have to increase the prices. But they say all the time that we're already passing on the rebates. So are they or aren't they? So if they have to increase the prices because they're going to be, you know, making less, then, and and they can't tell us it's a matter of compliance. That's really ridiculous. Well, they certainly should be complying all along anyway. Exactly. Exactly. And then you get back to trust. You know, how can you trust someone who's looking to hide? Like if you're hiding something, you must have something to hide. And it's usually not a, a very good something to hide. So I, I think that it's, it's really disingenuous of the PBMs, first of all, to have the nerve to claim that they save America money when it's, it's clear that they're making more, they're, make, they're the revenue makers for the insurance companies. And we all know how much you know, the insurance companies are hauling in, or we don't, I guess I should say. And then to disingenuously state that their legalized kickbacks and some of the schemes that they have to make money, that they're going to have to all charge us more. 
because we're taking a look at their schemes and we're getting to see what they actually make. Terrible, terrible, really erodes the whole trust in the healthcare system at a time when we need trust more than ever. Wow. This is, I I just find this whole thing interesting because transparency became the new political buzzword and candidates say they're going to be transparent. They say they're going to work for transparency with hospital costs. Well, that hasn't done anything because hospital costs were very obscure the way they came up with the costs in the first place. So what did it matter if they had this big list? That's not what the patient's ever going to see anyway. Employers don't even know these insurance contracts. So the patients don't know it either. So I just look at transparency. It's the, it's the new four-letter word, and it started to mean nothing. Out here in California, speaking of transparent, you know, everybody is talking about Diane Feinstein, who's nearly 90 years old, who hasn't been to her committee meetings because she apparently has shingles. And one of the California congressmen is saying, she should leave. She should resign. She should leave. And he's a fellow Democrat. And so I was kind of wondering, why is he going on and on trying to get poor Diane to leave? Well, it turns out he's the campaign manager for the person who wants her job. So, I mean, how how are we supposed to trust these people about anything they say? Oh, politics. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, and, you know, you, you bring up, you know, this whole idea. It's a great idea. Like, let's really look under the hood and be able to investigate what the pharmacy benefit managers are making so that we can do something. But, you know, you, of course, realize that this is like molasses moving uphill in the wintertime, because first of all, you have to fight just to be able to see what they're making. And then once everyone sees, you know, it's going to take a couple of years to that for that to happen. And then by the time that happens, then we're all going to be well, some of us aren't going to be shocked at all, and others are going to pretend to be shocked. And then still others are going to be scratching their head because they weren't paying attention to this the whole time. But it's it's maddening how slowly it works. I mean, well, it also I- gives them time to change their game. That oh <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I don't know if you realize what I'll what I'll bring up, but that. Uh, that Dave Yost uh, brought up a, a lawsuit recently. Um, so this this came out at the end of last month. He's suing the big PBM Express Scripts. He's suing the PBM Prime Therapeutics, which is owned by Blue Cross Blue Shield. It's their in-house PBM. And five others because he's blaming their drug prices on collusion. What these PBMs have done, because they realize that the heat is on, so they started to form another type of middlemen company called a group purchasing organization, a GPO. Interesting, because GPOs and PBMs are the only companies in America that I'm aware of. If you find another one, give me a text and let me know. But the GPOs are also allowed to collect legalized kickbacks. So what happened is that Express Scripts formed their own uh GPO called Ascent, uh, and then they offered the other PBM, Prime Therapeutics, that's owned by Blue Cross Blue Shield, some ownership in it, 
and they moved the whole company to Switzerland, which I guess further conceals some of its prices and its rebate collecting. But what uh, the state of Ohio is uh, is saying here with this lawsuit is that Express Scripts and Prime Therapeutics have used this GPO ascent to share pricing, discount, and rebate information so that they can collude, which allows them to drive the drug prices up even higher. And apparently it's a real trend because the other big PBMs are also forming their own offshore um, GPOs. So before I wrote about PBMs, I wrote about GPOs, and then I just discovered that America could pay attention to the PBMs because they all knew the names of Optum and CVS and Express Scripts because almost everyone uses a PBM to get a drug. But the purchasing organizations who can also collect kickbacks are even more hidden. So it looks to me like they're using another form of middlemen to potentially hide their pricing schemes. That's how it so appears there to you me. go. They, yes. They're one step ahead of us. They're like good, all good criminals. They're always one step ahead of the federales. So... Right. So when we were in, I was in D.C. at the end of March with some other free to care uh, people. And that was one of the things that we just wanted to point out to a lot of people in in Congress that we met with. Like, it's great that you guys are taking a look at PBMs. Wonderful. Go you. Look harder. Expose. Get to this transparency business. But by the way, while you're there, now you can't avoid looking also at these other middlemen group purchasing organizations. And I have to take another breath and just get this out of my system. But, you know, when we say middlemen, I just want most Americans to realize these are companies. They're not making any drugs. They're not doing any research. They're not even the ones that are moving the drugs physically around from their warehouse. There's another whole group of middlemen called distributors who do that. These PBMs and these purchasing organizations who do the middlemen work for the for the hospitals these PBMs and these GPOs, they just write the contracts to decide what gets into hospitals and nursing homes and what gets onto um, insurance company formularies. They're like a bunch of, you use the word gangsters. I use the word bookies. They just write the contracts. They're like a bunch of bookies. The thing that's fascinating, and, and this is something people can identify with, is the concept of the formulary where their doctors have them on drug X and suddenly the formulary changes and they say, well, you can't use drug X anymore. You have to use drug Y, even though the doctor knows it doesn't work quite as well as drug X. And this is happening more and more in Medicare. They started, what, what's the name of it? Where it's stepwise that you have to follow this algorithm, even they though- call it step therapy. Step therapy, that's right. Yeah. And um, even though- the doctor knows that I should jump straight to step three, but they have to do the one, two, three. I mean, what's the point of having a mind and having gone to medical school, having seen hundreds of patients to where you get a sense of clinical judgment where you know the right answer? You don't Terrible. need this high school G GED grad telling you, what you can give your patient. Well, and imagine it from the patient's point of view. So just, you know, uh, you're a patient maybe with epilepsy and you've been stable on 
um, a certain seizure medication for years, you haven't had a seizure. So now your life feels a little bit more set and stable. And all of a sudden, and this can happen even in the middle of your insurance company fiscal year, you know, they don't even wait for the, the new benefits program to come in. They'll just take mid-year and they'll, they'll, it's called non-medical switching. Nope, you're moving to this medication. And imagine if you were a seizure patient and then you have to wonder, am I going to have a seizure? I mean, am I going to be able to drive my car safely? Might I hurt people on the road? If I do have the seizure, they're going to take my license for six months. What about my job? I mean, you know, it, what, what about my own mortality here? I mean, it's, it's horrifying. And, you know, like extrapolate patients that have multiple sclerosis that are stable on certain meds, patients that have ulcerative colitis whose disease is in remission. You know, cancer patients who are expecting the chemotherapy that's holding their cancer at bay. It's it's terrible. And, you know, essentially the scrubs have no choice. The suits are telling them what their patients can get. And then the scrubs are having to, you know, jerry rig around the system. Or this is why I say that these uh, PBMs really need to show up in physicians' offices because they have their nerve complaining about being compliant with everything and having too much paperwork and having to hire people. I think, you know, for for what a physician has to do to make sure that a patient gets a certain medication for them to go through the process of getting prior authorization, there's sometimes four people hired in a medical office just to run through all that paperwork. A single office could be like 20, 20 doctors max in there. Four people are there to to take care of the work that the PBMs and the insurance companies have put between um, put between us and our patients. Well, it's terrible. And what's really sad, and it really gets my goat, is that these people who are doing the authorizations aren't doctors. Fortunately, it truly came out in a big lawsuit where a young man was denied a cancer treatment. I believe it was for lymphoma. And uh, so he ended up suing and his family sued. Uh, and the guy who was the medical director had to admit under oath, he didn't even look at these and that most of them were not even reviewed by medical personnel. So oh, there was some medical directors recently was I, I forget which insurance company, but I think they revealed that they would just like do 50 rejections a minute or something ridiculous like that without opening the charts. Yeah. I mean, so, terrible, terrible. Yeah, it is. Well paid, I'm sure. <laughs> Indeed. Well, when we come back after the break, we're going to talk about how this activism has in your, I think for all of us, we get out of our own circle, which with you is medicine, with me is medicine, but we get active in other areas in our community because medicine is just part of it. It's a big part of it, but we've got to look at the whole big picture. And we're going to talk about that when we come back. Right now, I just want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you know, we are always a beat ahead. You can hear Pulse every weekday at 5 with an encore at 10 p.m. Eastern Time and on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. All shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours. That's the great part. You don't have to sit there and listen right at 5. The episodes are on lots of the podcast networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. So make it easy. 
bookmark americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. The other wonderful thing I like about the show and our listeners like is that it's a different doctor every day. I'm on on Mondays. Tuesdays, we've got Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley. Wednesday with Dr. Peter McCulloch and Malcolm Out Loud. Thursdays with Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. And Fridays with epidemiologist Dr. Harvey Reich. And remember, we also have nurses out loud. They're on Monday through Friday with a different nurse every day at 10 a.m. Eastern. It was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that said, lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Okay, now that we're back from the break, let's switch gears a little bit since I've got a pediatrician and a mother here. I just want to talk about a few things. You know, in my title, I had porn, and I know it was a bit provocative, but I put it in there because some parents are really stunned at what their kids are exposed to in school these days. Man, oh man, when I was a kid in school, I never heard anything about sex, and people were talking about boogers and stuff like that, and it it just is incredible to me that five-year-olds are being told about sexual preferences and whatnot. So Dr. Mass is a pediatrician who talks to parents and kids. How do you talk about these touchy subjects like gender identity and this hypersexualization of kids so young? Well, you know, I do I do urgent care. So I actually don't do primary care and and have those long reaching conversations, but I do have so many instances where parents ask me about this, you know, like, and, and like, they're actually, they're asking my, you know, professional opinion. In my professional opinion, I think introducing too many very sensitive subjects at an early age is not necessarily the greatest idea for a child. And I'll backtrack from the teenage years on down, if I may. Um, mm-hmm. I meet so many kids that, uh, you know, of course, I need to know what is their sexual history. They might come in for abdominal pain. I need to know if they could be pregnant or could have an STD. They might come in with, you know, pain with urination. I, the same, the same things apply, right? And so then I have to kind of figure out. I always like say to the parents once they're of 
uh, an age that it's appropriate, I asked the parents permission to have a brief conversation with the child. And, you know, I said, I have to get through the sex, drugs and the rock and roll. And I say it with a smile, you know, because you have to diffuse the tension. And in my setting, it has to be done quickly. And you know what I find with so many teenagers, so many, Dr. Singleton, I 15, 16, 17, 18, even 19, I ask them if they're sexually active currently. And, you know, then if they say yes, I ask them to describe how so that I can figure out what the risks are. I mean, that's medical, right? So many people tell me they not only aren't sexually active, but never have been and teens and older teens. And the thing that I say to them is, you know what? A lot of kids tell me that and that's okay. And it's, it's your, your body and your decision for when to you know, give yourself away in a, in a very intimate way. So I'm not making a religious judgment on this. I'm not making really even a moral judgment. I'm just trying to give them ownership. I mean, we know from studies that very frequently if children start having sex in any form too early, they later regret it. But I think it, me empowering these kids with the decision that there's lots, lots of other kids that like them have decided that they're not going you know, to engage. And I, I see the relief on their faces. They just look so relieved. I mean, isn't it so hard to go through the teenage years without, without having like the modern worry of I'm not normal. I mean, what really is normal anyway? Everyone feels abnormal during your teenage years. Well, the thing that's funny is, you know, you talk about people being embarrassed that they didn't have sex. In my day, you were embarrassed if you did. So how (laughs) times have changed. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, I think I've also read that now we're sort of getting to a spot where kids are anxious about any type of sexual activity that, you know, and it kind of sort of makes you wonder, like, are we are we giving them too much too early where they they have a negative connotation. I mean, I I think, and this is a personal opinion, the healthiest discussions start with the family. I do realize that that's not always possible so that, you know, and I understand why public schools start in fifth and sixth grade to talk to kids about body changes and, and, and those sorts of things. But I think the best discussions do start with the family. And it's not like you tell them everything all at once. You know, you, you give them the basics. And then, you know, you, you move on from there. But the thing that's interesting there is, you know, you say you start and you do it stepwise. If you're in a classroom setting and there's 28 kids in front of you, it's pretty hard to see the expression on each child's face. Some might be shocked. Some might, you know, cry. Who knows how these kids are responding, but you need to be looking at the one-on-one response and who better to do that, of course, is the parents. Oh, of course. I mean, you know, I, I tell parents all the time. We actually had probably, we, we personally thought third grade was the right time to give them some of the basics. We wanted it to come from the family. And before they hit a point, we picked a point that before the, <laughs> the school bus sullied them before the playground sullied them, before they heard it. I mean, my gosh, what these kids get, it's a cesspool out there, right? You know, and and I remember from my own upbringing, there were like those kids that, you know, talked about it in the fourth grade playground. So that's why we identified that time. But I I do think these are very personal matters. Um, 
and over time, like, like you should look for all your learning opportunities to discuss with your kids. But I, I think when you're, when you're introducing it really early, first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, I, I think you're potentially confusing kids. And to do so very early, I think I'd call that the great experiment. And is it going to work out? And are we going to have a great experiment with something that's so sensitive when we know that we have an epidemic of childhood mental health problems? So are you going to take a topic that can be confusing, frightening, um, you know, and bring it up at a point when kids may not be ready to digest it? I think you're how I think I think that's frankly, that's experimental to me. And I, I, I don't think it's a good idea. Well, so here we are talking about sex education, but they're talking to four, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, kindergartners about gender identity. I, you know, the whole idea to me of a four-year-old being able to decide if they're a boy or a girl seems to me ludicrous, yet this is being done publicly in schools. I, I, I think you're setting up uh, children for confusion. I mean, like, you know what, in, in a big sense, we as a public or even in our local communities can address what's going on in our public schools. You know, private schools are another matter, right? Like if, mm-hmm. if parents are willing to pay for a private school where they're doing this sort of thing, it's like, well, I, I guess you're good. Those parents are going to have to to deal with their private schools. But in terms of public schools, it, to me, to do it so early seems like an experiment. And we don't have any data that doing so at this early age is going to be a wise choice for our children. My concern would be that we we confuse them and um, it in a very on a very sensitive topic. Well, what would you say, and you can answer just as a mom, not necessarily a doctor in the exam room, what do you say to a parent who says, oh, my little boy came up to me yesterday, and the boy is, let's say, five and a half years old, and says he wants to be a girl? What what should a parent do? Well, boy, that's a really naughty question, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> That's why I'm asking you. Of course, I know. Like, <laughs> am I going to f- solve this? Uh, you know, am I going to give the perfect answer? No, I'm not. So I'll say that ahead of time. I do think that there is a subset of people that uh, may not have been born into a gender in which they feel comfortable. I mean, we've known about that for a long, long time. Um, but the fact that it's increased in prevalence I, I think the numbers that I've seen are 4,000% during a time when we have a huge mental health crisis in kids makes me wonder if, is this confusion a manifestation of an underlying mental health problem? So my words would be, I would not make any assumptions. I would, just like you do with almost anything else that a child says, I mean, parents will have asked me over the years, my child comes up and they're, they're talking about death all the time. And, you know, my response is, okay, well, um, don't panic, like engage in conversation, 
because kids are like <laughs> one of the things my husband and I always have always said is never let them see you sweat. Right. <laughs> like, Stay cool. Be like a bunch of Fonzies. Stay cool. But I, I think for parents to like not. Not get excited, not get angry, not jump to conclusions and try to figure out, OK, well, why is my child saying this? But it it would have to be a conversation that happens over a period of time. I mean, maybe their child is saying that because they heard something at school or they heard another child at school doing this. And then that child was someone that they liked or they're friends with. So they think it's a great thing to do. I mean, kids do that all the time, right? I mean, my kids were like, so-and-so gets to buy ice cream sandwiches in the lunchroom and I want to do that. And no, I don't, I stayed cool. I'm like, well, you know what? It's here's why we don't do too much of the sugar. Um, so I think I would just say, have the conversation and, you know, make sure that you're not leading and try to figure out why your child is saying this. Because with an explosion of 4,000% of this happening in our culture, the data that we do have shows us that it used to be that most that had gender dysphoria were born with an X and a Y chromosome, biological males that wanted to become female. Right. I mean, for decades, the very, very small number of people that we had in our culture that wanted to switch were boys that wanted to become girls. The increase that we've had, that 4000 percent, is almost all the opposite. It's now girls that want to become boys. And it's the point that Abigail Schreier makes in her book and her speakings when she points out that it, when she points this fact out and her question is, is, is this a social contagion? And I don't think you can ignore the question. I mean, just shouting down someone that states this could be a social contagion. I think that's a dangerous thing to do. I mean, look at the epidemic of cutting. Whoever heard of people, you know, taking a razor blade and, you know, cutting across the wrists and across their arms? No one did. But then, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, all of a sudden it started happening. And then it was more and more and more, and it became an epidemic. And among almost all cutters were young women, um, not almost all, but like the large percentage, you know, a, a, a much higher percentage in young women than young men. So Abigail Schreier's points that she's making are that social contagions are things that young women trend to right i mean what was that whole thing that was happening on tiktok where uh the young women were having um motor and vocal tics oh yes yes i mean like you know so you can see these instances in our history of trends of people that are responding to what's happening around them i mean look i'm not claiming that women that want to uh, claim to want to become boys are witches but like the Salem witch trials, that was a social contagion. We have throughout our history going very far back evidence that women are susceptible to social contagion. And I mean, I, I, we can't ignore that. The appropriate thing to do is to discuss it and discuss it in a civil way because we're talking about our children. I mean, you know, children need and really truly want strong adult guidance to help them make decisions. I mean, you know, I've been told throughout all of the developmental work that I've ever 
and, and training that I've ever done. You know, always tell your parents that even though their teenagers seem like they're not listening to them or don't care, they really need to hear from them. The teenagers love them and crave knowing, you know, what what their parents think because they are looking for their parents' guidance. A hundred percent true. So what would be the worst thing we could do is to be uncivil to each other and not have a conversation about this. That's the worst thing that we do in our society. Well, and I think, you know, bringing that up as we, and boy, our time is even winding down here, that it's not just children, parents, this is everybody. We used to be in a position where we had friends of different viewpoints and different sides of the spectrum, different viewpoints about what we were just talking about. And it's turned into such hatred and vitriol. And yes, we're different, but that's what makes us strong is that we're all different. Who wants to all be the same? And what you're saying about having an open discussion, that applies to everything and everyone. Oh, a hundred percent. I honestly think that when we have these, oh, we're in an epidemic of incivility too, aren't we? I mean, people are yes. just yelling at each other and shouting at each other and COVID accelerated it. And now there's other cultural phenomenons that are doing the same. Um, you know, you, you asked about books at the beginning of this conversation in, in my community, like in our very large public school district, third largest in Pennsylvania, you know, there's a, a book policy was enacted. It's not a ban. Um, and there's not been a single book removed from school libraries. Even if you did that, you couldn't ban the books. Kids would be allowed to bring them in. But, you know, you, you read all over the press in our local venue about the Central Bugs book ban. There's not a ban. And like, you know, people are just so angry over this. Well, and, and this I, is I, such an example of hyperbole no one looking at facts and people looking at uh, provocative headlines. And that's, uh, I don't, whether that's the social media generation, I news headlines have always been headlines. They've always been provocative. So we kind of can't blame the newspapers, but you talk about cultural shifts. The one that saddens me so much is this shift away from civil conversation. And as always, whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.